Welcome to In the Envelope, a podcast from Backstage, the number one resource for actors and talent seekers. I am your host, Jack Smart, awards editor at Backstage, and I'm here to guide you through every aspect of the entertainment industry with the help of some of your favorite stars. These intimate, inspirational conversations with today's most award-worthy film, television, and theater artists provide you, dear listener, advice on how to live the creative life, personal stories of success and failure alike, and maybe, just maybe, a tantalizing glimpse in the envelope. What it all boils down to is actors who make bold and surprising choices, but they retain authenticity. Who keeps your attention? Who keeps your focus? Even if they aren't doing the best technical read of the material, do they have something interesting about them? Testing one, two, three. Who is ready for another wonderful episode of In the Envelope, featuring amazing, Emmy worthy, and Emmy eligible in this case talent? Uh, today's guests, the voices you just heard, are Damon Lindelof and Cord Jefferson, co writers of the hit HBO limited series Watchmen, which was the, this year's Emmy nominations uh, leader leading the nominations total. We had Gene Smart uh, not too long ago on the podcast. We've also featured Tim Blake Nelson. The show also stars Regina King, another friend of the podcast. So it was really cool to sit down with two of the kind of brains behind. There were a lot of brains that went into creating such a stunning piece of TV. But Damon is the creator and showrunner, and and Cord is also a co-writer. They are both Emmy-nominated this year. This was a great conversation in terms of, I kind of think we skewed the difference between a deep dive into the show itself, into Watchmen, but tons of like writing advice. What goes into a writer's room? Listen out for what these two consider to be great acting. I love asking stuff about stuff like that. But um, before we get to that uh, joint interview, uh, it is the two of them. I, I think that being able to distinguish between their two voices is fairly easy. The audio is kind of different for the two of them. They both sound great. We chatted over Zoom. Anyway, what's going on at Backstage this week? I'm looking at what we have available uh, for the slate, which in case you do not know and have not been listening to the podcast is our virtual uh, online community-driven content opportunities for talent and for experts. I'm um, looking at this week's slate of content. It's so amazing. Um, this week, depending on when you're listening to this, we have YouTube Lives with a life coach and a social media expert. We have Zoom webinars, we, but we also have uh, an Instagram Live with Samira Wiley. If you go to Backstage's Instagram at BackstageCast right now, you can watch that interview in full. The day that this podcast episode drops, uh, which is Thursday, August 13th, Rachel Brosnahan, the Emmy-winning star of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, is joining us for a Zoom webinar. If you are stuck at home and looking to get maybe some training, some education, some advice, but also just, frankly, some inspiration, please check out the Slate we, of course, will be linking to that. There's always a schedule that is updated. The other thing we link to every week, I'm going to keep bringing it up because Black Lives newsflash still matter. Um, our resources during the Black Lives Movement uh, article has been updated. 
I think it's relevant to bring it up anytime, anywhere, but it is relevant to bring up in terms of this episode because for those who haven't seen Watchmen yet, please go watch it. But Watchmen is a sequel to the original graphic novel, but it is also very much a reimagining and kind of a rejiggering of the entire story of Watchmen into the context of American racism and systemic racism and really analyzing what generational trauma is and inherited trauma and traditions and how systemic it all is. And if that sounds like a heavy drama, that's because it is. But it's also the most bizarre, weird sci-fi show with some of the most bizarre, weird characters. Anyway, Watchmen is great, but I'm going to read from this last bit of our Black Lives Matter article because it is about the casting on Backstage. Remember, listeners, if you do not have a subscription to Backstage, you can get a full free month by using this podcast's uh, promo code, which is Envelope. And um, I'm just going to read this thing about ethnicity and gender in the roles that appear in backstage casting because it is relevant to anyone who's maybe considering joining backstage or who's on backstage and doesn't realize this is true. Um, In order to encourage colorblind and genderblind casting, I'm reading from this article that is linked to in all of our episodes, productions can optionally tag a specific ethnicity and or gender or any combination of ethnicities and genders to each role. However, in general, these tags are describing the fictional role slash character, not necessarily the talent themselves. Anyone can still apply to any role, regardless of whether or not their profile is an exact match for the role description, and the productions can then evaluate all applicants together and easily cast against type. We also note that casting notices are actively edited for racist and hateful language. I am just mentioning this because I think it's very cool and very, very much a part of Backstage's mission to um, encourage casting against type and to find the best talent for the job, regardless of physical appearance, ethnicity, gender, however you identify. That is all up and running on Backstage as it has been. We link to this article in every podcast episode. So check it out. And I think that should about do it. I'm very excited for these for these next couple weeks of episodes featuring Emmy-nominated talent and for now, let's take a quick break to hear from a sister podcast and then get to this wonderful interview with Cord Jefferson and Damon Lindelof. If you are listening to In the Envelope, you probably love theater. And that means that Playing on Air might be your new favorite podcast. Playing on Air records great short audio plays. In just 15 or 20 minutes, you can hear fully crafted plays written by Tony-winning playwrights, including Lynn Nottage, Doug Wright, David Auburn, performed by world-class actors like Timothy Chalamet, Audra McDonald, and Marisa Tomei. After each piece, host Claudia Catania leads a lively conversation with the artists about the play, their craft, the ups and downs of the theater industry. As I myself wrote in Backstage years ago, the sheer quality of playing on air's episodes makes them required listening for working actors and smart audiences. Listen, I still mean it. To tune in, subscribe to Playing On Air wherever you download your podcasts. Damon Lindelof is an Emmy-winning writer and showrunner known as the creator of the hit series Lost and The Leftovers, as well as several sci-fi films and properties. Cord Jefferson is a journalist-turned-screenwriter with Writers Guild of America Awards for Succession and The Good Place. Damon and Cord are co-Emmy-nominated this year for Outstanding Writing for a Limited Series for HBO's Watchmen, their sequel to and reimagining of the classic graphic novel. Here's our interview with both of them. 
So um, we're going to talk about Watchmen. We're going to do a deep dive on Watchmen. But of course, because we're backstage, I would love to hear about um, how you both kind of got into the industry. We're all about the the early early part of the career on this podcast. How did this journey begin for you both? Who would like to go first? <laughs> I, I nominate Cord because his journey is infinitely more interesting than mine is. I, don't, I, I certainly don't think that that's true, but... Um... I started out as a journalist, actually. Um, I went from college. I, I started uh, out as a freelance reporter, and I worked for about seven or eight years in different capacities. I did some political reporting. I was a music journalist for a while. I was a blogger for a while. And one day in, I think, February 2014, I got an email from this guy named Mike O'Malley, who yeah. uh, is a writer and an actor, and he was opening up a writer's room for the show called Survivor's Remorse, the Stars show. And he had read some of my um, journalism and reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to come write for that show. And I had, I had only written one spec script before that that nobody had seen, that, that the guy who would eventually become my manager had seen because he reached out to me. He reached out to me in like six months before Mike O'Malley did and, and told me he liked some of my journalism and asked if I would be interested in writing for TV. And so we kicked around some, some sort of ideas that, uh, that resulted in me writing that script, but I had never written for a TV show before. And I just took the leap and decided that I wanted to give it a go. And um, today, to this day, I'm, I feel so incredibly grateful for Mike O'Malley just reaching out. I think that, you know, it's a, I think that it's a rare thing for people to do. Um, uh, I, I used to, I didn't know how unorthodox it was until I'd been in the industry for a few years and I realized that that, that sort of doesn't really happen. Nobody really cold calls you to come write for a TV show right. um, as somebody who's never done it before. And so um, I leapt and, and really enjoyed the process, really enjoyed the show. I enjoyed the collaborative nature of it. I had never, you know, journalism is an incredibly solitary exercise a lot of the time. It's you and an editor maybe. Sometimes when I was blogging, it was just me and nobody was going over what I was posting. So uh, a lot of the time it was just me sitting alone in my bedroom working on stuff. And so the opportunity to sit in a room and work with other actors, but not, I'm sorry, other writers, but, but not only that, actors and directors and producers and um, costume designers and, you know, the entire army that goes toward making a TV show uh, that was addictive to me and I, I kept with it. Is there no going back? It's, it's TV here on out. Um, you know, I, there's some, I, I don't say that I, I, I sort of am interested in all kinds of writing. I still am interested in doing journalism. If the, if the time, um, presents itself, uh, I, you know, I want to write a book. I sort of still want to do a bunch of, a bunch of different things, but for the time being, I'm having a great time doing TV writing. And I feel like, you know, now is a, a one of the greatest times I think to be in the industry because just there's so many opportunities and so many shows. And so, yes. um, you know, I think that for now, my, my main goal is going to be TV stuff. Yeah. Very cool. And, and Damon, this was NYU and then you moved to LA to become a screenwriter. That was the ambition. I, I, um, I went to film school, um, to, uh, with a focus on writing and directing and the big takeaway, uh, upon graduating was that I was not a very good director. Um, okay. And so I was like, all right, well, let's hope that the writing thing pans out. And my my attitude was to um, 
uh, NYU did a really good job of, tr- of teaching us the craft and um, and the study of cinema. Uh, I understood like what made great movies great, but I didn't understand the industry, uh, the, the the business mechanics that basically um, that that when I came out here, I would be viewed as a commodity. Nobody nobody would would see me as an artist. At, at least that was the viewpoint that I took. And so um, I think that great art happens in Los Angeles, but people kept using the word industry. And I, uh, when I hear the word industry, I just think of like factories and big machines and gears <laughs> and, yeah. and, uh, and, and people in suits and all that. And when I came out here, it, it, you know, I wanted to understand that side of it. So I spent around four years working alternately as a, as a PA, uh, uh, an, an agent's assistant, a studio executive's assistant, and then eventually this thing called a creative executive, which feels like um, the, 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 the strangest job title ever because I never thought executives were, were particularly creative, uh, <laughs> but Don Draper was. Um, but in any case, uh, um, all that time I was writing and um, really writing uh, a lot of bad stuff and I, mm-hmm. um, nothing that I wanted anybody to see. And I was also building a network of friends. And so after about um, four and a half or five years of this, I finally wrote something that I felt was okay. okay. And I submitted it to a screenwriting competition under a pseudonym for fear that uh, someone would find out that I had done it. Wow. And, and, and it went, it was the Nichols Fellowship, which is done through the Academy. Um, and it went, pr- it went far enough for me to feel like I'm going to, I'm going to take a stab at this. So I sent an email to everyone I knew saying, actually, I, I want to be a television writer. I watch a lot of television. I feel like I'd be good at it. I love collaborating with people to Cord's point. I don't like the solitary nature of sitting in front of my computer and writing. I would much rather do it, um, in the company of other writers. And I like to talk a lot. So that would, that would probably be, uh, a, good use of my time. And so my friend, Julie Pleck, who has gone on to be a very esteemed showrunner herself at the time was running Kevin Williamson's production company. He had had great success with Dawson's Creek and he was doing this new show called Wasteland on ABC and they were looking for a writer's assistant. So I quit my executive job to get lunches and coffees and, and, and wash cars for the writers on Wasteland. But I was in the room, um, in a real apprenticeship and when the time came, uh, you know, it, this is where my story and Cord's story sort of overlaps. And I feel like a lot of successful writers that I know have this moment where some person, some, some person in a position of influence asks to read you, you know, or reads you. And then that person, that person champions you in some way, shape or form. And that happened with a couple of the writers on Wasteland, um, Andy Bichelle and Jim Prater. They were a writer writing team. They were curious about what, what I was up to. And I, on the sly had kind of written the spec episode of the show that we were all working on. Mm. And a lot of the writers were quitting the show and it was getting to the point that they didn't have any episodes to produce. So I was like, I wrote one, uh, it, 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 it is coal that you can put into the locomotive that will make the locomotive run. I don't know if it is quality coal, but like it is coal. And, uh, and they passed along that script to Kevin Williamson who read it and had literally made, he anointed me a writer on the spot. It was oh. like, it was like being knighted in the middle of a, of a massive battle. What and, a uh, point. and so, yeah. 
yeah, that was my break. So, uh, um, and then like, you know, a couple years later, lost happened and blah, yeah. blah, blah. <laughs> well, I didn't realize there was so much insecurity early in the career. Is, is it true for, for both of early you? in there... the career? <laughs> what <laughs> is there a mountain of unpublished work? Like what is the ratio of stuff you've written that has not seen the light of day to stuff that's out there? Yeah, I, I I sort of feel the way that Damon does. I think Damon and I are similar in that regard and that I'm terrified all the time of what people will think of my work. I'm, I'm incredibly insecure. Okay. I'm incredibly, um, I have a huge case of imposter syndrome and, and uh, that, that sort of follows me throughout every job that I have, not just TV writing. It followed me through journalism also. So yeah, I guess you could say that. It's honestly good. Yeah, to hear. it never goes away. And I would say, yeah. um, I mean... Between the years 1994 and 1999, everything that I wrote should never be seen, and it would. Okay. And it's 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 over a thousand pages of material, like, and it it should be destroyed. Like, it should be sent to the opposite of the Library of Congress, whatever <laughs> whatever that whatever that place is where things should just be destroyed and stricken from the collective memory of. Hmm. The, I, I should probably after after this make sure that I can go through all my old hard drives for fear that if and when I die, someone will find these things and and read them. That's how bad they are. But those five years, so but that work is important, right? That was necessary to your evolution. A hundred percent. It's like training for a, a marathon. Like you can't just skip to the twenty six mile run. You have to you have to do all the training runs, mm-hmm. um, and so. I think pe- people very often solicit my advice um, in, in terms of like, what, what's the one piece of advice you give to young writers? And the, and the thing that I, that I always say is don't get stuck on, on the one thing. You know, so many people, they've been writing one piece of material and rewriting and rewriting and they give it to their friends and they get notes and then they rewrite it again. And it's like, three years of your life and all you have to show for it is this. Hmm. It may be better, exponentially better than it was when you started, but just put it away and write the next thing. Like, Hmm. don't get stuck. Keep moving forwards. That that ultimately, like, maybe, you know, like, maybe Confederacy of Dunces wouldn't exist had they heeded that advice. I don't know. Like, some people write, like, one amazing thing. Um, So feel free to ignore my advice, but I just feel like I know so many people who just, they get, they get flattened by the one piece of material. I, I at least have like 18 bad scripts versus, right. versus one. That's something. I think that that also, something that, that I find that that also does is it allows me to keep from going insane. And what I mean by that is that, you know, there are so many obstacles to getting stuff made in this industry and there are so many people who need to read a script and give it their go ahead. And then sort of they give it to their boss and their boss has to give it the go ahead. And then on and on and on like that, mm-hmm. that, you know, sitting around and waiting for everybody above you to say yes, can feel maddening at, at certain points in time. Right. And so I, it, in my mind and, and sort of over the, over the past several years, the thing that's kept me from losing my mind and going crazy every time that happens is just working on a new thing. And that, you know, coming home every night and saying like, this is my thing. Nobody can say yes or no to this. I don't need to like have any bosses to green light this. Mm -hmm. I can go home and like 
even if that thing is sort of stuck in development hell, I can always go home and sit on my computer and like, this is my thing again. Mm. So drafting should, should outweigh editing, I guess. Do more first drafts than revising, at least at first. I think that's the general idea. I mean, again, no, no piece of advice. You know, the other piece of advice that I give is solicit advice from as many different people as you possibly can, and then look in the Venn diagram for where it overlaps. You know, wonderful. Um, yep. Like that's don't don't take any one person's word for it. Cord and I have entirely different backgrounds, not just in that he came out of journalism and I came out of film school, but we, you know, we were raised in different circumstances by different people, like in different parts of the country. And so like, I, I, I do think that there's different paths um, uh, and different ways to what it is you want to achieve. But in general, the don't get stuck um, piece of advice, or I think what Cord says is like emotionally, there's just the excitement of going into something new. There, it could potentially backfire if you're always like, oh, I just always want to go on first dates, you know, because mm-hmm. the, the moment that I get to a third date, that I, that I start to see things in that person that I'm not entirely sure I like. Yeah, of course, that's, you know, that, that's the part that you have to power through too. So, gotcha. you know, be commit to things. But there comes a time when you have to move on to the next thing. And um, just acknowledge that. When that time is will vary by individual. But if if you basically, if you've been working on the same piece of material for two or three years, I think that's probably too long. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. That's really, that's exa- exactly the kind of advice we, I think our listeners are are searching for. I would also love to ask about influences and like inspirations. And I'd love to hear from you both, like growing up, maybe earlier in your life, what were the more foundational um, works of fiction or works of art that inspired you, maybe versus the the ones that inspire you today? Mm. I mean, for me, it, 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 it feels so, um, so mainstream, but it's just the case, which is that in the, in the late, I was raised in the late seventies, early 1980s. So it was, it was basically like the Holy Trinity of, you know, of Star Wars and all this, and all the Spielberg movies and Stephen King. Those were the, those were the foundational sort of things that I was ingesting, um, with a voracious appetite, uh, for those things. And when the, you know, Star Wars movies, you had to wait three years between them coming out, Star Wars was 77 and um, Empire was 80 and Jedi was 83. But then I had Star Wars figures and I would make up stories and, you know, and then there were Star Wars novelizations. So I was just consuming all that at a rapid clip. And then, you know, then, then I, I started reading Firestarter, I think was the first Stephen King novel that I read. And then I went back and read Salem's Lot and Carrie. And so any, he would put out about two books, it felt like about two books a year at that point. So I was reading all that stuff. And then just all the, all the Spielberg films kind of starting, I think maybe E.T. was my, was my first one. Um, and then working backwards and watching Close Encounters and Jaws over and over and over again. Mm. But like, that was the, that was the stuff that, you know, it, it's b- between ages like seven to 12 were firing on all cylinders for me. And then I went, and then I read Watchmen. I was into comic books, but I read, I read Watchmen when I was, I think 
uh, 12 or 13. And that's like, that was the other, you know, foundational work. And I'm not just saying that because we're going to be talking about Watchmen at some point, but it's like so much of what I read in those 12 issues, like it, I was like, I need to figure out how to do that. Like, how can I do that? You've said it's like your favorite piece of pop culture. I, I think I said it's the best piece of pop pop culture, but I don't know. I don't know if it's also my favorite, but it's ah. it's my favorite. My favorite changes. I it's, favorite is like ice cream flavors. Like yeah. I I have too I have too many, and so I just have get a little bit of each. Cool, cool. Mm. And Cord, what about you? I've been trying to think about this. I mean, this is always such a hard question for me. So much of my, I think, so much of my pop culture tastes, I think, stemmed from my dad. Uh, I think that he sort of, my dad was huge into comedy. And so we would always listen to, I remember listening to a lot of Bob Newhart vinyl records and Richard Pryor, Richard Pryor vinyl records and Tom Lair, who's like, he's, he's a lyricist, weird kind of, he writes those crazy songs. Yeah, exactly. He writes like crazy comedy songs about like the, my dad was into him too periodic table of elements and stuff like that like it was yeah yeah so i so i sort of spent a lot of nights on the couch listening to comedy records and george carlin records with my dad um spent a lot of time watching the next generation with him he was a huge tng fan um so i remember watching that with him a lot but i think that the first thing that i came to that felt really like it was my own thing that it was not my parents that I sort of adored and realized this is a thing that is mine because my parents don't like it. And I don't really watch it with my brothers was the Simpsons. I remember, I remember sort of being a huge, huge fan of the Simpsons when I was a kid, like every time, every time that it was on, I parked myself in front of the TV. Um, I, I, there was a, there was a time in my life when I was much younger that I, that I sort of would estimate that, like 40, 40% of my brain was Simpsons quotes. Like, like it was so, it was so important to me. And I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And to me, you know, some of those early generation Simpsons episodes yeah. are some of the greatest TV episodes in my mind. You know, when you had, when you had like Conan O'Brien, those, some of those like old Conan O'Brien episodes are just brilliant. I just recently rewatched that, the Michael Jackson one. And it's like, yeah. it's next level. Like it so yeah. holds up. Like, you know, even in sort of a post sort of like everything that we've been through as it relates to Michael Jackson, it's like, it's an, it's an incredible piece of storytelling. Yeah. They, they, I mean, those guys were just firing on all cylinders when they first started that show. It's amazing. I mean, of course it has the longevity it does because it was so brilliant. And then I think that another thing that felt like it was my own was rap music. I got really into rap music. I lived in Tucson, Arizona. So there was, um, there was very few black people in Tucson. And so my parents did a lot to make sure that I was steeped in black culture because they were worried that I wasn't getting enough of that when I would go to school. So I remember being, um, I remember being like the only, by far the youngest person and one of the only people in the theater for Do the Right Thing when it came out in Tucson. Like, I think I was like eight years old and my parents took me to see Do the Right Thing in the theater <laughs> because they sort of thought like, this is an important film by an important black director and we, we want to expose you to this. Cool. And so uh, they took me to see that. And so I, I watched a ton of Spike Lee movies. I was very sort of like New York centric too. I knew that I wanted to live in Brooklyn as soon as I, as soon as I could. So a lot of sort of Wu-Tang Clan, like, 
Biggie, like a lot of sort of New York centric rap music and film, I sort of I, I dove into also. Very cool. Very cool. I can see how this these are the puzzle pieces that create the work that we've seen. Um, do either of you have a writing process? Do you have maybe a writing routine? All that inspiration gets plugged into your ideas and then you sit down to write, I guess, for a solitary. And then I definitely want to ask about uh, the, you know, the mechanics of a writer's room and what makes a good writer's room. But do either of you have like a set routine? I try to start as early as possible. I don't really, I don't, I don't have any other routines. Like I don't have a special breakfast or special clothes or anything. I just, I tend to wake up at around 6.30 every morning. And so uh, as quickly as possible, I like to write. I think that my brain works best from like 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. After that, I start to get a little sluggish and maybe stop. But um, but yeah, that's that's basically my process is just sitting down and forcing myself to do it as quickly as possible. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much the opposite. I mean, I at least in terms of writing, actually, you know, fingers on keyboards, I'm nocturnal. Like I, I, and and I feel like a big part of that is feeling like the day has ended. I've I've hung out with my family for a bit. The emails are not coming in at a rapid clip. I think when when you know, for basically since 2004 now my role as a writer has also been as a showrunner. And so I've had to separate the writing process from all, all the other parts of running a show. Okay. And so you can't just respond to emails when, when it works for you. There's an, there's a sort of an expectation when you are at the top of the, uh, or at the bottom of the funnel, however, at the top of the pyramid or the bottom of the funnel, I think you're both simultaneously, things will get stuck if you do not, if you do not give quick and decisive answers. So by, you know, on Lost, where we were churning out like 25 episodes of that show a year for the first three years, the only way to write was to start writing at like 10 p.m. And so the, the, and, and so I just got into that habit. I don't even remember when I used to write prior to that, but it's gotten to the point now where, and, and we will talk about the writer's room process. I think a lot of writing happens in the room so that by the time I'm actually sitting in front of my um, computer and writing that I'm working off of a document that's been, that's, that's something to work off of. It's a skeleton and we're putting the musculature and, the joints and the sinew and eventually the, the, the skin and the hair and, um, and the clothes on it in the writing process. But to, the blank, anything that I can do to prevent looking at the blank page, um, is a necessary part of my process now. And gotcha. I've been, I've been working on jet, like a, a serialized short story in since the, since the shelter in place started. And it's been brutal because, it, I'm looking at a blank page every time. I don't like, I, I, ha, I, I wanted to see what it was like for me to write something outside of collaboration. And <laughs> I have come to the inevitable revelation that I'm not only am I no good at it, but I don't like it very much. Um, and so uh, that's, that's kind of where I've landed. Gotcha. So you, you're craving the collaboration of the, of the TV writer's room. Uh, a thousand. It's my, it's my, <laughs> it's my, it's my favorite it's my favorite place to be. Although Cord would be like, it is because you seem like you're miserable all the time. But <laughs> we, had, we, had, we had some good times. That was a, that was a, that was a tough room. 
think we had I think we had a, a many many good times. Yes. I think the good times far outweigh the bad times. <laughs> Completely. Well, yeah. So I'd love to hear about it. Like, what what went into the magic of the Watchmen writers' room, and what would you say is necessary for like an ideal collaborative work environment like that? Well, those are those are two very big questions. Yes. I mean, I think that the Watchmen writers' room worked because for for a couple of reasons. The first was that um, we were able to develop camaraderie as we went because many of us were strangers to one another when the process started. And I've been in writers' rooms where there were two or three writers in that room that I had worked with before, but there were seven writers in that room who I hadn't worked with before. And, and, and so that idea of finding yourself in a, in a very intimate um, situation that requires a, a lot of trust. Because when I say intimate, I think that to Cord's point earlier about all of us having some degree of imposter syndrome, which sounds like it's some level of false humility. After all, we're professionals, so we're there. So it's sort of like, it's like being a professional basketball player and saying like, oh, I don't know if I'm really good at basketball. I assure you that hmm. almost all of us really believe there's a part of us that is like, I don't belong here. I don't deserve to be here. These people are going to figure out that I'm, 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 I'm completely and totally winging it. And so when you're in that environment and you acknowledge that most everybody else is feeling that way, and then you have to confidently present ideas mm-hmm. and then fight for those ideas and then, um, and then employ some level of groupthink, it, it requires a tremendous amount of trust. And I'll just say that you know, from the jump, I think that the writer's room that, that we had together, we trusted one another and the work was really hard. It was really hard because we all cared very deeply about it. And we all had a sense of ownership mm-hmm. from the jump because we had pre-existing relationships with the source material, but then like everybody just glommed on to a certain part of the story that felt like very personal to them. And when you take things, when you take everything personally, it, it, it's very intense, but it actually generates incredible work. And so I think that like, I think that's one of the reasons uh, that it worked. And, and then, and then the other part is that I've been talking about this idea of inclusivity and I'm making uh, air quotes right now for years and years and years but I think what I was really talking about prior to Watchmen was some level of kind of like virtue signaling tokenism, which is like saying I have a diverse writer's room that has eight white people in it and one or two people of color. That's, that's not real inclusivity. And so the, the Watchmen writer's room was not that. And at, particularly given what the, what the source material was and, 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 and the story that we were trying to tell, that was essential but you, it also, I'm, I'm, I'm spending, you know, eight to 12 hours a day with a group of individuals who have an entirely different backstory than I do and finding common ground, particularly through the exploration of this, of this story. Um, like I've never learned more than I did in the year and a half that we were working on Watchmen. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's frustrating to admit that you have so much to learn when, you're supposedly in charge. But uh, once I got out of my own way, I think that the show started to really do something original and special. And uh, I'm really proud of the work that, that we did collectively. Cord might have an entirely different perspective. You know, <laughs> he, he actually had the benefit of kind of, com- like he was there for, for, the, 
for the for the pivotal chunk at the beginning. Then he went off and worked on the Good Place, uh, yes. the final season of the Good Place for a while, and then he came back. And so he might have a better sense of perspective about it all. But um, you know, I don't know if he'll he'll be honest with me sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to hear about your view of the Watchmen writer's room, but also did switching to work on The Good Place and coming back, did that actually influence the second half of your work on Watchmen? Um, I would I would say that, firstly, I had a just a wonderful time working on Watchmen. I think that I was incredibly intimidated coming into the room because I was such a huge fan of The Leftovers, and uh, not only had Damon created The Leftovers, but also... There was uh, a few leftovers writers in the room, and I sort of worshipped the work that they had done. And so, and and I had never been a genre person. I had never really sort of tried writing sci-fi before. I knew that that was um, a huge part of Damon's catalog, but it, it was it was not really anything that I had attempted before. So I walked in there thinking that I would be a little bit out of my depth when it came to this kind of storytelling. I don't want to interrupt. I just want to say that I hired Cord after he'd already done a season of The Good Place. And that is a genre show. <laughs> like, it may not be sci-fi, yeah. but, like, they're dead. Yeah. <laughs> they're dead and yeah. they're hanging out and having conversations. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt, but you're a great, you're a great no, job. No, no, please. And thank you. Thank you. I, I, but it's certainly something that I didn't come into the room thinking that I was. And so I came in there and was a little bit on my heels, but then I immediately saw that what we were trying to do wasn't, it was genre, but it was also incredibly grounded and full of rich details that I was super interested in, like generational trauma, like the, like Tulsa 21, all of these things that uh, I was really, really captivated by, uh, along with the genre stuff that people know and love from Damon. So... Uh, and yeah, it was, it was a difficult room. I, I sort of, it's been interesting to hear people talk about stories they've heard about the room and how hard it was. And I think that there were some hard days and it's, you know, part of the reason is that we were dealing with such third rail issues. You know, you're dealing with sexual violence and racial violence and secret identities and things that you hide from your loved ones and, and anger that you carry with you throughout the course of your life. Like these are all, and, and, you know, not to mention things like, uh, reparations, uh, like, like all of these issues are, it's hard to talk about with your closest friends and family, let alone a bunch of your coworkers that you've just met, you know, like that is, that is, that can be hard to do sometimes, but, um, it never, felt embittered. It never felt uh, really angry. If anything, it always felt cooperative and we were doing something that was always m moving the ball forward toward a greater good. It was always, always my feeling that I left with. It, it never felt, um, yeah, it never felt like it got ugly or anything. Mm. And in a way that I think that a, a room could get ugly when you're talking about those kinds of things really quickly, it never felt that way to me. Right. And so I actually felt bad to leave to have to go back to the good place because I, I really was enjoying the work so much. And so we went, but, but when I went back to the good place, you know, I guess it does share some DNA. I hadn't really considered how deeply, but yeah, it does, it does share some DNA. And, and, you know, Mike and Mike and Damon are friends and there was shout outs to the leftovers in the good place that that happened that, that because Mike is such a fan of the leftovers mm -hmm. and I never felt like I was too far away from the from the process of Watchmen as I was gone because I was constantly getting updates from Damon and and 
the rest of the writers. And when I came back, I was just, you know, I was excited to finish strong. I, my, my, my enthusiasm never flagged being away. I, I, just, I always wanted to come back and, and help make the best show possible. I was incredibly excited to come back. I was, you know, it was the longest process that I'd ever worked on a TV show, but you know, I, I never felt, I never felt like I was wasting my time. Not, not even slightly. Yeah. And what is it like to end? This is true of the, of the good place. I mean, that was the final season of the good place too. Like, is it emotional to end Watchmen? I know there was some question about Watchmen coming back, but it it will not. Correct. It, it, as, as as far as we're concerned, it's okay. not going to come back. I mean, I we we are you know we don't we don't own. I offered to buy it, and uh, and Warner Brothers oh. told me it would cost seven and a half billion dollars. Oh. So. <laughs> I, 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 I can't, I can't afford it. So it's, it's, it's their, it's their call. Um, but I, I think there's a very high probability that there will be more Watchmen before the world ends. Then it it what's the horizon for the world ending is really the, 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 the more imperative question. It's just like, if something is successful, if it's IP that people are familiar with. And, and I also said that when we, you know, we got to, we didn't create Watchmen. We got to come in and kind of do it. It, it was an existing, um, it was an existing record that we were able to put on our t- our turntable and sort of uh, and sort of play um, with yeah. and and mixing in some different influences. But that record is available for any DJ who wants to spin it. And so I, I hope that there is more Watchmen. But I think in terms of whether this story that that we set out to tell is going to continue. If it does, it won't, it won't be authored by us. Um, and to me, I think like that's, there's a very compelling argument to be made for that's the way that it work has always worked in comic books, which is a writer and, or a writer and an artist. They take a, they take a run on a character. Um, you know, Alan Moore, for example, who created Watchmen, uh, with Dave Gibbons, he did that with Swamp Thing, and and that's how he made his name. Swamp Thing pre-existed Alan Moore, but he came in and did sort of a riff on it. And other incredible comics writers have come in and done the same thing. And you know, we have Christopher Nolan's Batman, um, yeah. and now we're about to get Matt Reeves's Batman. And so, like, I I think that the the idea of seeing someone else come in and do Watchmen. Hopefully we've opened up the tent a little bit more and said like Watchmen is a little, there, there's actually a lot, a lot of room for invention um, in, in, inside this tent. Um, and anybody who wants to come in and tell stories there should be welcome, but, but we're, we're not um, going to do it. And so in terms of the emotion of it ending, it was having gone through this experience on a six season show and then got, having gone through this experience on a three season show, like the one season show, even though it did go on for, for quite some time, it just like, I, I think that I had the sense that while we were in it, that we all knew that there wasn't going to be any more after this one. And, or at the very least, we never had any conversations in the writer's room about like, let's save that idea for season two gotcha. or like, you know, it was sort of like we're all at least we're all together for this period of time to make these episodes. And when we have made them, it, we will be done. And this story is going to have a beginning, middle and end that we all kind of knew that. And so we appreciated every day with that understanding. And then when it was over, 
because it went on for so long and so many other writers had made other commitments, like by sort of the end, it was like, who's available to come in tomorrow? Like, so we had smaller rooms and, and with different permutations of groups of people, but you know, like they, I didn't want to prevent any of the writers from taking their next gig um, because I had held them for so long. And as I said, Cord left. <laughs> the Watchmen went on for so long that he was able to do an entire season of The Good Place during inside the season of Watchmen, and he was there for the, for the bookends. So, um, you know, it was a year and a half of of, of writing. That's remarkable. Yeah. And Cord, was there an emotional goodbye to The Good Place? Yeah, I think that that was a show that I think for. A, it was, it was a show that just felt very familial by the time that I was mm. done with it because we, I had been working with basically the same people for three years. And uh, the, a bunch of them had already worked together on Parks and Rec, so they were close um, when, they already got, when they first got there. And then they, they welcomed me in with, with open arms. And so I really, just, I really just loved the process of working on the show. I really loved everybody that worked there. Um, but also the show... I think ended, you know, it, it was so bittersweet. I, that, that, that show's sleight of hand was, was the fact that it got you to forget for four seasons that the, these people were dead people, yeah. that, that, you, that, that, it, that just death, death like enshrouded the entire thing, but you forgot about it the entire time. And so for that last season, those last two episodes, you know, you're, you're killing off not one beloved character. You're killing off most of the, most of the leads of the show. They're dying. And so, yeah, it was, it, it was, I remember in the last table reads, everybody was, everybody was sort of near tears or just openly weeping because of how sad it was that it was, it was just an incredibly sad sitcom, but that's one of the reasons that I was drawn to it is because that sort of melancholy nature of it is, yes. is what made it stand out and interesting to me in the first place. Totally. Totally. Thank you so much, you guys. This is so great. I have to let you go soon, but obviously because we're backstage, we're all about acting. And I would love to hear from both of you. Slight side note, I thought the acting on Watchmen was like maybe some of the best TV acting I've ever seen, like mm. <laughs> ever. Um, and we just spoke with Gene Smart just yesterday. Um, awesome. And we've spoken to Tim, we've spoken to Regina before, but I'm wondering, do you have a definition for what you consider to be great acting? Like what, or what is it that you look for in an ideal actor? First off, thanks so much for saying that. And I think that, you know, I think that there's a, a not not to deflect the, the compliment fully appreciated, but I think that the, the acting on what we're calling television right now, but is actually, I think, is, is more th this idea of what's what's movie, uh, what's a movie or what's TV or what's just content is getting blurrier and blurrier. And you're yeah. seeing incredible actors across you know, different mediums. And so something like when they see us, for example, that just had, I thought, staggering performances um, and, or Chernobyl or unbelievable, just to name a few. And so uh, um, a fun side note about Jean, and I don't know if you guys brought this up, but she's about to do this project with Mike. Uh, sure. Um, yeah. That just got announced yesterday, which is uh, super exciting. And I think that um, I've been a fan of, of Gene Smart since designing women and um, and then obviously saw her on, on 24, which I was a huge fan of, but more recently on Fargo. And I think that I'm always really interested in actors who are 
who are culturally inside a box. And by that, I mean um, the culture decides, oh, this person is a sitcom actor. So you look mm-hmm. at like someone like Brian Cranston mm-hmm. and they, the, this guy's on Malcolm in the Middle. And those actors have such a broad range and, and skill. And I find that if you write cool stuff for them, that's a little bit outside of the way that they've been perceived, they always rise to it. Now with Regina King, you just like, you just put it down on the page and she's going to transcend the material every time. It's not like she's to have her as number one on the call. sheet was, was, was truly extraordinary, but with, with actors like Gene or Tim Blake Nelson, um, or, or Jeremy Irons or Yaya, who I was, you know, largely unfamiliar with except the first time I saw him was in an episode of Handmaid's Tale. And I was just like, there is just something so compelling and interesting about this guy. Um, and I think that like what it all boils down to is actors who make bold and surprising choices, but they retain like authenticity, like their performance never takes you out. Like you're just inside it with them. And it's, it's, it's impossible to explain, uh, why some people have it and others don't. Um, and then, and then the other part of it is, is you want really generous actors who are going to play well with others. Mm. And one of the things that I love to do is I watch actors that I'm considering listening in scenes, like when they're not talking, because the really gent, that's the really generous ones. Um, you know, you watch them when they're not talking and that's the, a, an incredible performances are happening there in the silence. And so, you know, that's, um, you know, just, uh, at first blush, um, my, my, my feeling about it, but I'm sure Cord, Cord is, uh, is, is casting his own thing for the, you know, for the first time now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, but I sort of Watchmen was the first time I had ever been brought into, casting conversations for real. I mean, we talked about it as a, as a big group on good place. Sometimes Watchmen was uh, the first time in my career that it was Damon and me and the casting directors and, and, and some of the other producers, you know, emailing back and forth where I felt like my input was actually very, very um, important. And that is yet another time that I was a little terrified because I, I thought that I was out of my depth, but something that I learned from Damon and, and sort of following his lead was that that idea of, of trusting trusting when you notice the indescribable, which is that just who keeps your attention, who keeps your focus, who even if they aren't doing the best technical read of the material, do they have something interesting about them? Do they make an interesting choice somewhere in the read? Even if they even if they forget all the lines, did they do something interesting that you could see that that a, that a director could get in there and give them more time and they could and work with them and they could be sparkling at it. Like, like that, 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 that willingness to trust, mm. trust your gut over, over sort of perfection and trusting your gut over, over saying like, Oh, this person did a perfect read, but this person had, was kind of idiosyncratic and weird mm. and they didn't have a perfect read, but I couldn't stop looking at them even cool. though their read was imperfect. Like just trusting that and going with that, was um was one of the best lessons that i got wonderful that was pure that was pure backstage gold thank you thank you for <laughs> yeah thank you um thank you guys so much for joining this was such a this was such a fun thing do you have any um any parting words of wisdom for our podcast listeners maybe particularly in specific to the age of quarantine 
Well, I, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I think now is, um, is an incredible time to be alive. And maybe it's just because we're, we're, we're in the midst of it right now, but it does feel like, and I'm not the first person to say this, but like, it does feel like a shift is happening that like whatever direction the world was headed in, um, prior to January of 2020 has now been altered and we're heading in another direction. It's just one of those events that people will refer to as, as a before and after. And I don't know how much longer this is going to last, but I do know that this idea, I think that the most emotionally troubling part of it for people is this sort of idea that the light at the end of the tunnel keeps getting moved back. Yeah. Um, and I want to re, you know, and I, and I just feel like we have to reframe that idea of that there is always light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but like when you emerge into that light, be prepared to emerge into a different world that you, you went into the tunnel with. And uh, obviously take it one day at a time if you can. Um, I think that projecting out into the future and planning for the future, then it starts to get very devastating when that, that future changes. Mm. We can't really cont- control much beyond what is immediately in front of us right now. And um, if ever there was a case for living your life in day-tight compartments, um, n- now is that time. And when you get very focused on the present, um, I know that that's like a very kind of corny and meditative and, <laughs> and immensely privileged thing to say because if you if you're out of work right now, you have to think about the future. Yeah. Um, but the more you can focus on what's right in front of you, I think the, the the better off we we are collectively. And just have as much empathy for other human beings as you as as you can. I would uh, everything that Damon said, and and um, maybe stop looking at Twitter so much if you have Twitter still. That's 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 something that I've forced myself to do is to just stop reading the doom and gloom as soon as I wake up. Uh, I think that this is, again, I think that this is an incredibly privileged thing to say because I think there's a lot of people for whom um, this, these are incredibly tumultuous times and panicking is natural and understandable. But if you can uh, find a way out of that and if you can find a way to clear your head and meditate for me, my meditation, I don't really meditate well, but my meditative thing has been doing puzzles, which I haven't done since I was a little kid. So it's like the first time in probably 30 years that I've done a puzzle, but I completed a thousand piece puzzle the other day. That wow. Just felt, uh, yeah. It what was, is it of? Uh, it was of a Wayne Thibault painting of cakes. <laughs> I don't know if you know. He's like, a, oh, of course. He's like an incredible, yeah. He's like, He's an incredible, he's a, he's a very fa- apparently famous, it was the only one that they had left at the bookstore is what it was. That's, that's why I got it. But uh, he's apparently a very famous, uh, non-threatening American artist who just mostly was known for painting cakes and, and pastries and things. But if you, can, if you can find something like that to clear your head and turn off your phone for a little bit and stop looking at the computer for a little bit and just step away from it all and take a deep breath, that is, I feel, uh, incredibly valuable in these moments. I have, uh, I have eaten many cakes since this started. <laughs> so also, also helpful. Probably not, not helpful in the I long just, run, but helpful in the short run. I, funnily enough, just for the first time ever baked a cake. So I wow. baked an olive oil cake that, was, that is incredible. So delicious. There's another, I've also gotten into baking to ease my mind. Great. 
I mean, these are yeah. great tips. So yeah. bake a cake too. Yeah. yeah. And I hear you on the Twitter. I have not been on Twitter since February, since actually before the crisis. It's been really crucial for me to just... Very smart. I can't. I can't. Unplug. I know, Damon, you haven't been on Twitter since 20-something. Uh, right. When, whenever the left... It was in like October of the year before the leftovers started. So, uh-huh. um, like, and here's the, here's the good news is you can be off Twitter and you can still learn what the name of Elon Musk's new child is. <laughs> it's like... All the information that you need to get from Twitter, it will still find its way to you. I am, I am living proof of that. I don't, yeah. I don't know how to pronounce the name of Elon Musk's child. I think it's like A X A E six one two or something like that. But yeah, um, it's. Uh, but I still know. So you don't need Twitter <laughs> for that. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you, guys. This is this has been really insightful and. I think our listeners are really going to get a lot out of this, especially those who really want to be screenwriters. So thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. In the Envelope is recorded at Lotus Productions and Hyperbolic Audio in New York City and Soundbox LA, Mark Grouse Studios, and Buzzies in Los Angeles. Thanks as always to our producer extraordinaire, Jamie Muffet, and to the team at Backstage, Samantha Sherlock, Mark Stinson, Caitlin Watkins, and of course, Casey Howe. Visit Backstage.com, and don't forget, you can subscribe to Backstage by using the code ENVELOPE at checkout for a free trial. That's right, 100% free. For more exclusive content, join us on Facebook and Twitter at In The Envelope, and subscribe, share, and leave a comment. Would you like us to interview next? Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another glimpse in the envelope.